Welcome to the Macafab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and how humans and CAD interact. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 399, and this week we're joined by a returning guest. Josh Manley is the co-owner and CEO of CADclass.org. Through a comprehensive array of courses and literature, CADclass.org provides education of various software and design methodologies catering to individuals across all proficiency levels. Since 2010, Joss has been utilizing his experience to create educational opportunities for anyone and everyone who wants to learn engineering skills. So last time Josh was on episode 389, which was titled Academy Education, uh, we actually got way off track of what we actually really wanted to talk about, which was CAD and how it is the language of how we describe 3D objects. That was like our main bullet point, and we just never got there. We talked about <laughs> fusion and uh, and just like... <laughs> learning about CAD and how important CAD is. We just never got to that part. So Josh, thank you so much for coming back on this podcast, even on short notice. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Parker and Steven. I had a blast last time. Very much looking forward to the conversation again. Before we jump into, uh, hopefully this doesn't take the whole podcast episode, (laughs) this one question. But for those who missed the last time, episode 389, what is CADclass.org and what has happened in the last 10 weeks since you've been on the podcast? Yeah, so uh, cadclass.org is an online education platform, specifically right now around the CAD program Fusion 360. So it's a book, PDF guides, online video course, physical book on Amazon, and a Discord server. So cadclass.org was really an all-encompassing platform for people to come and learn in one space. I think one of the most important skills, I like to say CAD is as important as code, and somehow we've gotten pushed to the side in the physical making world, and everybody talks about code. So I like to say that uh, we're trying to build out the the kind of CAD equivalent to the code academies, where you come on and learn, and you, you got a space to do that with anybody. And then we start with tutorials that are free, so you can download the book for free on our website, all the way up to paid courses, paid trainings, and kind of beyond from, from there. So we kind of touched on this as like our topic for last time you were on, but CAD being the language of 3D and how we basically communicate ideas to other people with 3D ideas. I guess let's just jump right into that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for some context here, I had been running a makerspace in Southern California, the education department of a makerspace in Southern California, teaching wood, metal, welding, laser cutting, 3D printing, CAD, Arduino, electronics. I had been teaching all kinds of different disciplines, right? And one of the things that struck me as I was there is that when when you want to communicate your your idea to somebody, and it's an idea in the physical world, it's a three-dimensional idea, uh, there's this really funny thing that happens, which is people start miming in hilarious ways. So I, I want you guys to stop. The next time you see somebody try to describe a 3D object, and just see if you can understand what they're trying to say. So I, I kind of recognized that in the workshop this was happening when somebody was trying to tell me. And within the first sentence, I had no idea what they were talking about. Because they could say something like, all right, imagine a box. I'm like, well, what kind of box are we talking about? Is this a shoe box? Is this an Amazon box? Like, where do we start? And so this idea kind of got into my brain, like, oh, we don't really teach people to draw all that much anymore, right? So there's not really hand drafting. And also, we don't really teach them how to model three-dimensional ideas on the computer screen. So in some ways, have we just completely forgotten about communicating 3D ideas to people? Like, is this a skill set that went away that we need to bring back? Because it turns out when you want to make a physical product in the real world, having some way to communicate that idea to somebody else or to a machine is a really critical idea. So it started when I was just observing people in a makerspace and thinking, there's got to be a better way to do this. Obviously, we were introducing some CAD programs and functionality there. Um, And then that led me to the next revelation was, and we were talking about this before the podcast last time, maybe a little bit on the last time as well. But CAD education tends to be sparse. It's on YouTube mainly, and then you have some teachers that try to do it in person. 
what happens very quickly with CAD education is there might be an intro tutorial or two, and then it's difficult to keep up with the class. There's not a cohesive resource. You feel like you get bits and pieces of it. And this even applies to engineers that I speak with that go through engineering degrees, mechanical engineers, and they'll say, oh yeah, I took a CAD class or two. And, and I ask them, well, how far did that get you? And they say, not very, for the most part. And that's not every program. So then I started to realize, okay, I think there's, there's also just this lack of cohesive programming around what it takes to get you from, I know nothing, I know very little, to actually being able to bring your idea to life on a computer screen and then eventually be able to bring it to life on something like a CNC, a 3D printer, or some other piece of equipment, or or just show it to other people to gather feedback about your idea. So really doubled down on this idea and have since started to reflect on the state of where we are when it comes to communicating 3D ideas. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the miming thing. I think Steven has watched me like mime with tools in my hands <laughs> all the time. <laughs> like I'll pretend I have a screwdriver in my hand <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, actually... When I try to describe things to people, it's mostly like, okay, I try to describe, you try to, with words, and it doesn't really work too well. And it's always like, okay, let's just go to the whiteboard and I'll just draw it out for you. Now, I had the advantage of having a drafting and CAD background, so that's typically easy for me. But a lot of times there'll be someone else in our group that doesn't. And they'll try to explain it, and then it's me interpreting it, and then drawing it, and then erasing part of it, and we re redraw <laughs> over and over and over again. I don't know about you, Stephen, but that do you have similar experiences like that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it kind of reminds me of an old friend of mine that um, I was in a art collective with. He's a sculptor out in Houston, and something about him and I, we had this weird way that we could communicate. 2D and three-dimensional things using the weirdest language and somehow we just understood each other. It was magical. Or, you know, we'd be on a job site and he'd just pick up a pencil and a two-by-four and start drawing stuff on on the side of a two-by-four and like, I get you. But that doesn't necessarily connect with everyone. If, if someone heard the two of us talking, they'd be like, I have no idea what the hell you guys are saying. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, like, I don't know. They're, they're, Parker's the same way. Like when Parker does the the air screwdriver, like ninety nine percent of the time, I know what he's talking about. I can <laughs> I can catch on with it. But but you know, in in relation, but no to, one else does. It's really yeah, weird. Well, I've, I've I've heard you talk a lot. I know I know what you're getting at there. But in relation to CAD classes or, or classes in CAD, I, gosh, a, a handful of months ago, actually, well, it was about half a year ago, I was talking about taking some CAD or potentially taking some, some classes in CAD and trying to get a, a certificate in CAD. And so I did a bit of research around and, and what I found was there wasn't a lot of options for a certificate in CAD or just CAD in general. And if you dug into what was available, most of those classes weren't, here's the fundamentals of drawing. It, they were all just, here's how to use AutoCAD. It's kind of like someone saying, hey, I want to get better at writing papers. And then someone saying, let me show you how to use Word. I don't need to know how to use the program. I need to start understanding the language behind CAD. I need to start understanding, like, how do I think about drawings? And how do I, uh, how do I incorporate that language such that when I talk to other people, they understand me? And I feel like that's that's sorely lacking in education. Because I know... When I first started in engineering, I, I was in a mechanical discipline and I did take a CAD class and a lot of it was like, here's how you draw a rectangle. It's like, okay, but I wouldn't have known at that time that in order to round a corner, we call that a fillet. I want you to teach me mm -hmm. that's called filleting or mitering or chamfering or, or all of these other words that I didn't know. Like, I don't need you to teach me how to draw a rectangle. Definitely. I mean, what I will say is that we kind of took the opposite approach, which is where we said we do 28 step-by-step -step projects and we hold your hand through all 28 projects. Mm. But I think we do so at a depth that goes far beyond just the five tutorials that you're likely to get. And then some of those ideas start to seep in. And I will also say that we've we've had discussions about, Jake and I, my business partner, have had discussions about incorporating some of that because now that we've gotten some people over that hump and they actually understand the software, they understand how to build some things, they understand how to put some things together, the discussion that you're talking about, which is you've got some experience in this universe, you've done it for a while, becomes really interesting because you say, I now need to know about design principles. Right. 
top down, bottom up? What's the design philosophy you're using? How do these how do these parts interact with these other parts? How do I think about how to organize my timeline and my you know if you're working in Fusion something like that? Like how do I think about how to organize these things and put these things in together and then to communicate these things with other people and other machines, other people who are likely to come in to this picture. So I think you're totally right, and I, it's still, as far as I can tell, basically an empty landscape. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was seeing. And, and like, as somewhat of a of an example, let's say you had a, like, let's say you had a drawing of a box, and you're looking at the inside of of the box, or let's say let's say there there was some kind of element. Steven's on- also miming right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah. waving my hands all over the place. Uh, it, there was. That was perfect. Let's say you had some kind of like hump on the outside of a box. We might call it like a hump on the outside of a box or something like that. But if you had a very specific kind of hump on the inside, someone might call it a boss, right? But how do you go from not knowing what a boss is to knowing what a boss is such that when you're actual boss at work comes up and says, I need a boss inside of this enclosure. This is not supposed to be a joke. It's turning into one. But uh, but when they come up, you can, as a designer or as a drawer, uh, you can say, I know what you're talking about. I can go do that. Your Honor, he told me to put him in the box. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think part of it, uh, it's difficult. So I learned CAD after having quite a bit of experience working with physical hands-on stuff. Mm. And so when you make a cutting board, you're going to round the edges a little bit because you don't want to cut somebody with those super sharp corners, right? And so you start to learn about these things called fillets, right? Or chamfers or whatever style of edge you want to put on that. And and it's just because I did it. And so then I work back into the CAD platform itself. Uh, But what I will also say there is like, we incorporated all of those making ideas into our step-by-step tutorials, hoping to speak the language of actual manufacturing into existence. So these people... When we're when we're making a box and rounding the edges, right, and calling it a fillet, they're getting the visual intuition of that idea. They still might not understand really what a fillet is or what purpose it serves, but that's I think again where we're learning to think visually is a different skill set than just telling people what a fillet is. It's like, well, what if I just I'll make the box, I'll round the edge. And I'll name that term so that when you go back into this program next time, it's loosely in your brain. So, and I think that that applies a lot too. If you think about learning disabilities or people who maybe you know have struggles in various areas, once you bring the world of 3D into that, and you can show people how it's done and walk. Same reason why working with your hands is a really viable alternative to some people who have some challenges in school. So, I think bringing those ideas in intuitively, but also saying what they're called professionally, but not necessarily overwhelming the person with more information than is necessary is really that fine balance. Not sure we got it right, but we certainly put a lot of effort into that style of thinking. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. And like we said, I think that's absolutely lacking. Definitely. Yeah, and I think it gets it's like even deeper than that, right? We, we say as we're making things, the... A lot of times with a CAD program, you're making something in three dimensions so that it can be made in real life. That's not always the case. And obviously, when we say CAD, I feel almost we need to kind of define what style of CAD we're talking. So I'm really talking about the type of CAD for manufacturing specifically. So when we're dealing in Fusion 360, for example, we're really dealing with the type of CAD that brings product ideas to life. It's more powerful than just that. But you also have other CAD software like Blender, which is more for video game design, I think. I may I might be don't take my word for any of this stuff, but you know, it's more for character development. It's it's a surface modeling as opposed to a solid modeling or parametrically driven design. So But a lot of the same concepts translate between the two, right? Mm, definitely the concepts translate some, I mean, surface and parametric modeling are tricky. Def, I think if you can learn one software, you can probably learn the other software. This is an instance where by getting better at one thing, you probably will get better at the other thing. If you learn to code, you actually probably will have a little easier time learning CAD. If you can learn a language, like a spoken language, I also think you'll get a little bit better at learning other hard skills. So I think it's more of a, the translation is, it turns out when you learn a hard skill that takes a lot of time and discipline to get to know, you get better at learning other hard skills that take a lot of time and discipline to get to know. But it's it is translatable somewhat, but they are pretty different. Yeah, because I I have a, my evolution through drafting and CAD is weird because like I took you know drafting and CAD AutoCAD two uh, D in in high school, but 
towards the end of that, I did 3D rendering, which was in Lightwave, which is like Blender and that kind of stuff. And that's uh, character mesh modeling. And I couldn't figure out that. Like, I couldn't put objects together. But the fact that you couldn't, like, oh, it was so weird. Like, maybe it's just my brain doesn't work this way. Like, to take a, because it was more of you took an object or, like, a sphere, Stephen, mm-hmm. and you started pulling on it. Yeah, you morph it. To morph it or mold it. Right. It's more of molding or sculpting than actually drawing. It's two, actually, in my opinion, two different ways of putting a model out there. Because in the end, you could probably mostly <laughs> make both methods work to get the end result that you want. It'd be very hard in both. Like, try to think of, like, if you wanted to make a, a bust of George Washington, for example, how would you draw that in auto, like in Autodesk, uh, Stephen? In Fusion? Yeah, in Fusion. Oh, that, that sounds horrendous to do. Be a nightmare. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But whereas in like something like Lightwave or Blender, which is designed to do th- that kind of morphine and, and so it's a different skill set. It's like in the end result, yeah, you, get a, you can get an STL file, mesh file, <laughs> but the actual process. You know, and that's actually one area of fusion that I've never touched is the, the mesh and the, and like all the morphing and, and, and I've seen people do basically uh, uh CNC guitars and, uh, and like carve tops that have, you know, unique contours that flow across the entire body. I, I watched a few videos. And I was like, I'm not going to touch this. That seems a little <laughs> bit too, too much for me right now. So actually it might be that fusion has, similar tools in there that that Lightwave and Blender have for this kind of modeling. It does have some tools. I'll say I also haven't touched those tools all that much. I focus kind of away from those, but that is one of the biggest asks we get from our community is, hey, can you explore some of these tools? And I haven't quite decided whether or not it's worth exploring the fusion tools in that universe or if it's worth just hopping over and saying, actually, maybe it's, if you want to do that kind of stuff, maybe it's worth just hopping over to Blender. So I'm in the early stages of trying to figure out what, we'll probably do some basic tutorials in Fusion about it, but then go, if you want to make character development a reality, if you want to make these more organic shapes, if you want to add, make a guitar that's got that nice flowy top, maybe your best bet is a different program, but I don't know. Now, yeah, I'm, that's, that's also a good question. You see, I feel like that would be difficult to teach because let's say you wanted to teach someone the basics to make a cube. You can say, draw a square this, extrude to this, and everyone can accomplish that. But if you give someone a mesh and say, pull and morph and squish and squash until you like it, like there's a defined beginning point, but not like an appropriate end point. Do you like it? Done, right? So I feel like that would be harder to teach. Are we talking art versus science here? Absolutely. Are we talking math? You know, it's a, that's what it really boils down to, right? Like I can tell you from a classroom standpoint, kids would much rather just pull and morph and move and they don't want to have to think about parameters and design decisions and how the thing's going to be made. They're like, I just want to squish things around on the screen, <laughs> you know? But I agree with you. Well, I think- un- until they want something that is well-defined and a bracket and, and useful. <laughs> and a bracket. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> I like how that's, I think we talked about that last time a little bit too, is you use it a lot for making brackets. Yeah. So it's funny that well-designed and bracket got smushed together like that. But truth, right? Brackets, connectors, all things like that. You, you would have a hard time with a surface modeling software to, uh, I think, you know, can I haven't, I, I'm not the expert in that world. So, uh, I wouldn't take my word for this one, but that is what Fusion is particularly good at is you know revolving, extruding, playing with shapes, but in a defined kind of a way, I think is for lack of a better word. Yeah, it would be, I'm just imagining in Fusion, you drawing this character and you're like, I want to make its ears two inches wide instead of just like wearing like light wave or whatever, you would just like move them till they looked how that character should look, right? Well, and yeah. I guess technically you can do an undefined drawing in Fusion, but... Uh. Yeah. Shame. <laughs> shame. shame. Fusion gets shame. really grumpy mm-hmm. if it's not defined. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The best is when you can't find that one thing that's undefined in Fusion, and so you start playing with the numbers and seeing what's not defined. <laughs> I click and drag everything. Oh, I yeah, I yeah, my yeah. mouse around and try to pull and move, and I'm like, all right, what part of this doesn't move? Yeah. And then every once in a while, you discover it was a bug. 
Oh, yeah. And you, have, you close Fusion, open it back up, and it's like the old restart your computer trick. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, look at that. Magic. Yeah, it just it basically, I wish there was a way where you could like recalculate all the constraints just without having to do that, basically. Sometimes there is. You know, you can roll your timeline backwards and forwards, and it's supposed to recalculate everything after that. But uh, I find it a little buggy. Yeah. It doesn't always work. And then it's tripped up somewhere, and I restart the program, and it works for some reason. And you know, the program, there's another program. Have you guys ever played with Tinkercad? No. No, okay. So Tinkercad is just 3D shapes. And it's Autodesk was trying to introduce a program, I think, that was much more user-friendly from the very first time you got into CAD. So it's just like all kinds of 3D shapes. You can add them together. You can subtract them from each other. That's about it, right? So you can put things together, you can pull them apart, you can attach them. It's still all playing with shapes, but it never has anything to do with the 2D part of it. So you don't make a square and then extrude it. You just start with like a rectangle or a, or a cube, and then you can add a sphere to that. Now you've got a rectangle sphere. I don't know what that is, <laughs> but you've got a rectangle sphere. And you run into some of those problems, like you were saying, Parker, where, okay, now I want to make, let's go to Steven's example, now I want to make a bracket that actually fits this thing. And what Tinkercad does really well is it gets you playing around with shapes in your head and showing off little fun designs. But what it doesn't do well is allow you to make something that fits perfectly. Can I center the hole? Not really. right? Am I able to make this exactly the size that I want? Not really. So there's just tons and tons and tons of playing around with the program that you have to go through to try to make the thing that you want to make. And what happens with a lot of people is they get so intimidated by the later quote-unquote, harder Fusion 360 parametrically driven modeling software that they stay in Tinkercad for years. And they, they go through horrific difficulty trying to get things right just because they don't want to graduate to the next program and just say, okay, time to, time to move up the chain and do the thing that's better suited to the task I'm interested in. I remember being that kind of designer with SketchUp. Was I was using this is when I first met Steven. I was drawing a lot of stuff in SketchUp, and then Steven like, "Can you draw this for me?" And I'm like, "Okay, let me go find a tutorial of how to like spiralize <laughs> threads in SketchUp instead of basically <laughs> learning a tool that just does that, like Fusion." Well, at the time, Fusion wasn't a thing, but uh, yeah, it was one of those like finding that one tutorial of like what tricks to use to make it work. I found SketchUp really hard to learn for some reason. I poked around and I didn't I didn't spend a ton of time in it, but I that perspective, I'm like moving things around. Like you said, I like, no, I have this idea in my head, but I feel so far away from being able to execute that idea that it just blocked me. Yeah, yeah. That, I got to that point too. So I, I must have opened and closed that program a hundred times before I eventually was like, I'm just never opening that program again. <laughs> and again, it's no knock on SketchUps. It's a great program, but I just didn't really understand what it did well and what it didn't do well. Yeah, it, what it did well was it was free <laughs> for uh, <laughs> students. And what it didn't do, that was the thing is you got to a certain level where you had this idea in your head and you just couldn't execute it in the software. And it was one of those, I at the time, it was either I didn't know a better, like I, I guess at the time the only better software was like SolidWorks and there was no way as a, you know, individual I was able to going to afford that software. And so it wasn't really until like Autodesk was 123D, which was before Fusion, which was the first piece of software. Like it actually gave you some of those tools that allowed you to do way more complicated parametric designs to, you know, actually get out there. Like threading a screw. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now you have plugins like McMaster Car. Oh my God, that's grab. amazing. I love that. It's an amazing plugin. It's like that, I think, is where maybe that's a good segue into some of the AI stuff we were talking about. I think that might be a great example of use case for AI is being able to type in a quarter 20 thread. You know, a quarter, once you start to understand the, the styles of hardware that you need or the things that you can find in that catalog, just being able to type it in and grab it quickly from the catalog and drop it into your design could be a workflow enhancer big time. Yeah, almost like what's going through my mind is if you're already drawing something, if AI is kind of predicting the hardware that you would need for that, such that when you go to get hardware, it's like, here's some quick suggestions. Like if you called out a hole that was a quarter quarter 20 thread hole and you go, okay, I need my fasteners and it just already has quarter 20 fasteners right there. 
So I think there is stuff coming down like that. I think I don't quote me on this one, but I believe I saw a plugin that is something like that. I haven't gotten a chance to play around with it yet, but it was it would take, or maybe it was part of the patterning tool that Fusion already integrated. I should probably know this, but uh, I've now forgotten. I think it does say, okay, all these holes are the same size. You've already made one screw or whatever you made for the hole, right? Do you want to just replicate for all the rest of the holes that we think you should put them in? And and then it makes a predictive guess because the hole sizes are the same. You probably want them everywhere else. And it spits out a bill of materials and it spits out your, your, your tool path for your CNC and takes care of all of it, fires up the CNC. Yeah, that sounds great. Sign me up. Yeah. Walks over to the hardware store, grabs materials. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, places an Amazon order for you. I'm just imagining one of those like little delivery bots. Just like as you're designing and you hit finish, a little like your doorbell rings and there's a little robot that opens up and there's like your Ace hardware order right there. And, and yet your your robot arm goes it grabs your screws yeah. right yeah yeah for sure <laughs> you don't even get out of your chair right right and then you come back and it's the equivalent of the spaghetti monster on a three D printer you're like it tried, <laughs> it tried. <Yeah. laughs> now now, it's now like, this is the it's thing got sorry on the screen now does the robot have to make multiple trips to Ace Hardware like we have to because I, we always I, forget something I would imagine <laughs> I would imagine yeah. Yeah, if you've looked at the examples of ChatGPT coming out, right, it hallucinates occasionally. So I'd imagine it's it's going to forget on its way to the hardware store exactly what it needs, just like we do. It went to go get quarter twenty socket head fasteners, and it came back with a green egg barbecue pit. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about walking into an Ace Hardware or not even like a Home Depot with the just walls of stuff that make me go brain dead. <laughs> like the second I walk into that store, it's like the my brain falls out the side of my head and I can't think. I'm like, man, th- look at this. Like, look at all the shiny objects and toys. And like, oh, that's a circuit. Look at this new track saw. I need a new track saw. And before I know it, half an hour, I don't even know what I'm in there for. So here's one for you guys. Have you ever designed something in Home Depot? Like, have you gone to Home Depot and knew that you wanted an end product, but had no idea any of the constituents of the product. And, you know, yes, I, I remember one time I knew I, I, I was going to build a potato gun, but I had no idea any of the parts. So I literally had the phone out. I had a whole sketchbook because I was like, you know what? If I just go there, I'm surrounded by, I, I guarantee you can make a potato gun from Home Depot stuff. So just go there. And the goal was leave with all the parts to make a potato gun. Did you succeed? You can't. That's a cliffhanger. Absolutely. Yeah, I was like, you can't leave a cliffhanger like that. You know what's funny is, because that's mostly PVC parts. Mine is a PVC part thing, but it's a complete. It's a. When I was in middle school, I made a. Uh, it's a. It was a filter system for my fish tank. It was a skimmer style, and which uses like air bubbles to like separate out the proteins and stuff. Anyways, I had no idea how I knew how they worked and the, like the structure that it needed to be. And I'm like, dad, take me to the hardware store. I, we need to figure out how to build this thing. Cause like to buy one as a kid was like, there's way out of my price range. And so and for like 40 bucks, I was able to cobble one together. I just like sewer pipes and PVC pipes with different <laughs> diameters. Me and my dad are sitting on the floor of the hardware store, like putting parts together so I, I had like I drew out to my dad like this is how it the water flows through it and all that stuff. So yeah, it took like three hours though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I have also done that, and I actually think it's a pretty good strategy when you're especially when you're first starting to make things and like you don't have the CAD skill set right. Like you didn't model it up. You've got some loose idea of a thing in your brain, or even maybe a concrete idea with photos, right? But I think that's a great way to go about it. Just walk in there and ask the people that are surrounded by this stuff every day what they would do is probably a bit of a lost art because now what you just go to YouTube and you'd get your bill of materials from YouTube from the com- from the, either the comment section or from the drop down menu. And so I, I do think that's a bit of a lost art. I did that with a product I was trying to develop. I was trying to figure out how to develop this light box to protect a piece of equipment. It was a cylindrical, basically a cylindrical object, and I was trying to buy something off the shelf and then repurpose it. To uh, to fit this device that had to go inside of it, and I, it's exactly what I did. I just walked into the store and walked every aisle, but I, I succeeded. 
I'm not sure I saved any time though, because I just ended up roaming the aisles like, oh no, how am I going to get through all of this? The worst with projects like that is you find like the path to start to the end and you get to like step eight out of like 10 that are is in your brain and you can't find that step nine piece that makes it work so you have to go back throughout the whole store put everything away and then start over again <laughs> oh Ooh. nailed it yeah that's rough I've, i have i don't know a single maker who's not done that yeah and it's deep in a rabbit hole and it's usually something you've been thinking about for such a long time too yeah like oh i got it I'm, i figured it out and you think you figured it out and then you go to do it and no I, didn't, I don't know how these connect yeah <laughs> it's ruined that is one of the things with cad though especially with like the McMaster plugin from Fusion or for Fusion, I, I find myself designing around that quite a bit to the point where it's like I could go and cross-reference all of these parts and then go to the hardware store and hope that they have them, or I have all the McMaster part numbers I could just click by. Absolutely. And then I know it comes in exactly like I drew it. I think McMaster is... I'm a massive fan of McMaster. It's so amazing. And the shipping is just as quick. I don't know how they managed to streamline their warehouse like that with so much stuff. It's a real business marvel to me. So I, I totally agree with you. And I think our big limiting factor on for a lot of us is time. It's it's how much time am I going to spend driving to the store, coming back from it, or pulling up a new cart or opening a new tab. And then even attention, like I run out of ability, like my my I'm brain dead by the end of some of this stuff. And so it's like I run out of an ability to even do anything else or drive anywhere else or I just say forget it. Just give me the list of stuff. Yeah, so, totally agree with you. I wonder if that's where some of these like language model AI stuff where the idea what I had was like, you know, you get down the rabbit hole. But what if like you could give it a like an AI the prompt and it could go down eight different rabbit holes for you and then you can just see what the rabbit holes look like and then you can pick the one that's actually probably going to succeed and then iterate on that. I think actually, so for product design, I think this is great, right? I think if like, because what we found recently with AI is that image generation is actually really good, and so if you can prompt engineer just right, if you can, if you have the right prompt style, you can actually very quickly generate product iterations and ideas. And I, don't, I just saw this study that came out of I think it was MIT where where they, the research team had asked the AI to develop a move like a walking robot. And it developed this weird, like oddly shaped, spongy-looking thing. And it turns out that if you fill this thing with air, it like moves along a surface. They just published a paper about it, but it it was able to generate an idea that a human being definitely couldn't. I would shouldn't say definitely come up with, but it was like so bizarre. You're like, wait, what? I didn't I didn't even think of movement in that way. And so I think that's when you can generate four images every five seconds, and you can just quickly iter- iterate on those image designs, I think that has a real ability to unstick people from design thinking challenges. Like, how could this connect? What are the different ways things that connect? Like, those, all the stuff around how to think about how things may go together, I think are really interesting. And also from the business perspective, from AI, but, but definitely from a design standpoint, I don't think physically making the design with AI, I don't think we're very close because there's so many different nuances to the connection points and how things go together and and accurately describing in words what it's the problem we talked about early in the podcast it's how do you describe in words what you're trying to make we already talked that's a problem that is the problem is we don't have the language when can an ai see our miming yeah <laughs> and it goes i think you you meant a box by that that looks like the letter c <laughs> Well, I, I think, gosh, our entire lives were is basically drilled into us that when you have an idea or you're trying to get somewhere, the goal is to be as fast as possible to get from nothing to the, and I'm, I'm using quotes here, correct thing at the end. And so we're kind of taught to, if, if your mind comes up with something dumb or an edge case, just avoid that, go away from it, because that's not, that's not marching you towards that end goal of perfection in a way. But AI can zip through all the edge cases and it doesn't care about making dumb things. And there could be something valuable in one of those edge cases. Like, I don't know, an inflatable sponge robot. Because, yeah, that sounds dumb, but maybe there's something there that we're just trained to not even think that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you know we we tend to think in things in from the design world, like you learn from other designers. You go and you look at how things are made. If you want to make things, you you just go study how things were made. So we spend our whole lives basically only having had access to whatever we've interacted with in our physical world. So we we tend to design in a way that matches what we've already seen. And that was the I think that was, you're exactly right. That was the striking thing about this from MIT. It's oh wow, we now have a new way to borrow a brain that is sufficiently different from our own and from anybody else that we're likely to interact with, why wouldn't we borrow some of that brain power? Why wouldn't we start to question our design decisions if, if the sorts of images and ideas that are generated are workable or interesting? So yeah, I think, that's a, I think you'll see a lot of that in the next five to 10 years, especially as compute power grows and people understand. It's like you, you don't know what you don't know. And in this case, you don't even know what's possible. So just borrowing an extra brain and going, uh, what do you think? It's really interesting. Yeah, th- there's a really cool, um, I can't remember the YouTube name, uh, channel name, but they had a video on basically like the lathe as a tool and how it was developed. The lathe was one of the first, I think was the first like precision instruments that humans made because it allowed you to rotate something on an axis and then, Anything that you do to that object on that axis is now symmetrical. I think that's machine thinking. Is that machine thinking? That was the origins of precision. Yeah. So the the cool thing about that video is not just the lay talk. It's actually the history of developing this precision machine and how it changed how people thought about how to design things. Because before it was everything before was handmade. You had a rock and you had a and you had a chisel basically, and that was it you hit stuff. That was how you build stuff. But now you could spin something. And so that just was this new thing you could do as a tool. And I, that's why I think that's what AI has that advantage is it could just, it can go down the rabbit hole, the weird edge case, or like think of the, how do, how do I build this if I don't have a constraint of previous preconceptions of how it should be made? Yeah. And we tend, I mean, I, I speak for myself here and I, I'd be curious to know what you guys think too, but I, I, my design brain is very limited. I'm, I'm a, let me compare my, like, let me see what I've seen. I, I look for images. I very much look for inspiration in that world. And I'm not easily able to come up with unique designs in my own head. I can come up with variations on designs pretty well, but that's where I think a lot of engineers struggle is a box. I have two things that need to go together. I'm going to have an edge and like, it's very, I don't want to say rigid, but it's like linear thinking. And so anything that pops me off the path of linear thinking and then help, helps me think outside of the way I normally do it, I think it's really valuable. Yeah, one of the sculptors I used to work with, he would use this word as often as he as he could, but rectilinear was his, was his <laughs> word. Basically, when describing something like an engineering or an engineered part, it's like a square that can fit in another square that has like nicely <laughs> well-defined edges. It's very rectilinear, which I, I love that because I hadn't talked to the guy in years and had a phone call with him just the other day. And of course, he pulled that word out and it's like, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> now, now, now uh, one thing that I, I think is an interesting parallel with what we're discussing here in in terms of talking about the world of 3D and how we describe that, I would love to hear the conversation between a structural engineer and an architect. And how does how does the architect get the concept to the engineer of we have this organic shape that cannot be described directly with words that are clean and nice in to the engineer's mind. And then how does the engineer come back and say like, well, we just can't make what you, what you say. That would be a really fun, because that, that's a joke, you know, like architects make things that are, or they design things that are unbuildable, right? Or if you're Steve Jobs or, you know, Apple, he's like design things that are unbuildable and then just, you know, smush the idea down people's throats enough to go, no, 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 you're just going to figure this out, right? I, I do think there's also that part of the conversation. So there's a lot of it that's unbuildable, but there's this pushing of the boundaries that happens between it too. Like, uh, are you sure? Maybe, probably you're right, but like those, like, I would love to hear that conversation. And maybe that's some of the key to the, the AI questioning as well. How do these two people interact? Gather some information about those conversations. Hmm. Yeah, the AI is almost like a translator between. Yeah, yeah. Ask him this question. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking about it all wrong. (laughs) Oh, it could just even be where, like, 
the AI could be like the tool assist for the architect to kind of like make sure what they're designing be like, you know, if you design it that way, it's going to require like titanium I beams. Probably don't want to do that. That's really interesting. Well, it could, or, or the other way around, the AI could assist the engineer and say like, hey, if you do it this way, you could actually achieve the shape that they're looking for. Or if you change this design, it would actually look cool. <laughs> it, it would no longer be rectilinear. Yeah, it would yeah. no longer be that. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. To get back to the, the AI a little bit and how it relates with CAD, I think additive manufacturing and 3D printing gets kind of interesting because you're no longer quite as constrained by edges and boundaries when you have a machine that can build up. And especially when you talk about four and five axis additive manufacturing, and especially when you start to talk about materials like, you know, they're doing rocket bodies with 3D printers. So I think as we start to stretch and bend and morph the idea of how things are made, again, with something like a 3D printer, it also will change how things can be connected and built and joined in a way that doesn't actually have to be so constrained by the the materials that we have access to in the world. So if you have two pieces coming together on the end, maybe that's an interesting task for an image generation engine for now, and eventually a 3D engine like there are some tools where where you can give constraints to Fusion 360 and it will automatically generate some of those ideas. So I think that's where you're seeing some of the early morphing into that world. It's like combining it with a technology that's itself also not so constrained. There are other constraints, so I'm not suggesting 3D printing solves all problems. But in that way, it would allow you to generate some organic shapes. It would allow you to play around with structures. It would allow you to make things that you couldn't traditionally make and do so pretty quickly in a way that you could test at home or at your workplace. Well, and live active DFM, right? To be able to tell you as you're going, you know, if you had in mind 3D printing as your method of manufacturing and you make a really stupid design decision, it could be like, hey, dude, this is not going to work. Like, like a crazy overhang or something like that. Yeah, yeah, because traditionally yes. with, with design for manufacturing, you you get some percent of the way done, if not all the way done with your idea. Then you hand it to someone and they say, oh, yeah, you need to redo this, this and this. Right. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's you were for 3D printing. Your example is you take your model, your model is done in fusion. Mm-hmm. You push it over to your slicer and your slicer goes, OK, it's going to slice it. But. I got to put all this support material here because of this overhang. And you go, oh, that's going to like increase my print time by double. Right. And if you could have designed around that problem, you know, as you were designing it, you could have, you know, saved yourself a lot of trouble. Or, okay, so then maybe that, that makes me think of another idea is maybe when you pull it into the slicing software, maybe that's an application for AI too, is you tell the slicer, you maybe click on some parts of your model that are critical, and then it generates a model. It gives you some warnings saying there are too many overhangs. We right, and then it also offers up some of those suggestions that can then be incorporated into the model in the slicing software to say, you know, we'll save you eighty percent of your time here, or you know, we'll reduce material this way. So I, maybe that's another possibility is kind of back and forth. Yeah, I like it. I like the idea also of using AI to clean up toolpaths in CNC because. Uh, in a lot of ways, I've, I've used uh, the cam in Fusion 360 quite a bit. And one of the things that's beautiful about it is you can do a lot, a whole lot of complex uh, geometries in a few clicks and you'll get toolpaths. But a lot of times those toolpaths are way unoptimized. They do all kinds of weird movements and things like that. So yeah, sure, you're saving in the upfront design there, but your machine's doing a boatload of extra work. And the trade-off goes when you go to production. You know, if you need to make one of them, you saved a ton of time because you had a lot, a lot fewer clicks on your computer. But if, if you're making 100,000, you would want those toolpaths to be better. I could see AI stepping through all of the toolpaths and stopping and being like, hey, this one's dumb. Move it here and, and readjusting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just going ahead and taking a stab at some of those for you. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting application, especially if you, I think the the technology is like one of the, one of the, worlds that I like a lot right now is the design world, tools like Canva. And one of the things that I find fascinating about Canva, and there's many other tools, that just happens to be the one that I use, but one of the things I find fascinating is you don't have to start from zero. And the, the idea of templates has been around for a while, but Canva seems to have almost democratized 
this whole world of just like start from like 80% and then optimize the final 20 as opposed to start from zero or 20% and optimize the final 80. And so that shift I think in thinking is like either maybe it's, it gets you the final 20% because you've already fed it that 80 and that 20% would have taken you a ton of time or it gets you the first 80% and then you have to go through the optimizing of the final 20. I think that like the template, there's, you're probably going to have to tweak it still quite a bit. There's just so many different machines and parameters and bits and materials and types of thinking and and then specific applications that you have in mind and surface finishes and qualities and on and on and on forever that I, I have a hard time seeing it getting 100%, but I could certainly see 80. Well, that's just the thing. Like the the when a CAM software finalizes a tool path, that's like the solution to an equation. You've given it a gigantic equation and it spits out and it says, this is the answer. If you run it again, it will give you that same answer. But AI might be able to give you six or seven different options that are slightly optimized. They're not 100%. They're not the solution, but like you said, they're 80%. And and then you can go from there and say, hey, yeah, this is this is the best of those options. Yeah, and then if you could, you know, if you could click through the variety of tool paths, you can just run a quick simulation, put the eyes of an experienced machinist on it, and go, ah, this is this one's not quite right. And then, but but you got seven templates to go through. That's very very interesting. It's like it's good enough engineering. <laughs> good enough until it isn't. Right. Until somebody goes, ah, the eighty percent's good enough, and then we know how that goes. 80%. Well, you see, you see what you're doing is you're you're still building your job security because if you leave that twenty percent, you can always tell your boss there's more to optimize here. <laughs> yeah, that is one of those I think overblown fears of AI is that it's going to get rid of jobs, and I I think like all technology, it's going to change them. I don't have you guys ever had conversations like I I worked in a traditional workshop for a while and had access to traditional workshop tools, and there was a bit of uh, what's the word I'm looking for there. If you're a woodworker and you're using the CNC, are you really a woodworker? Right? So there's this 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 like tool people holding on to the past about what a tool once was, but if you were talking about this earlier, I think Parker, where well, we originally or maybe it was you Stephen, it's like we were originally just banging things together until one side of the rock fell off and we had a, now we have a nice edge and so we could stack another rock on it. And then we we're like, well maybe if we made a tool to knock that edge off it'd be a little bit better. And so our tool game continues to increase and yet at every level where we the rock bangers were angry at the people who used chisels. That's right. <laughs> I think so. Yes. No, that's exactly. It. You guys aren't real rock bangers. The rock bangers like you and your tools like ah you get out of here with that stuff. You are not a real rock banger. <laughs> I bet you. I bet you that exists. You know, I'm, that I'm has sure. Have existed. I, I'm sure when when we all adopted email, there were jobs that were all telephone based that that went away. Right? I guarantee you that that existed. Of course. But like those people weren't left out on the street. They adapted. Well, and that's no, no, like faxes as an industry just went away, minus like a couple niche areas, like medical for some reason. And like the DMV or something like that. Pay phones. Yeah. Yeah, with cell phones, pay right. phones went away. Not that that's an industry. Right. I mean, you have the industry yeah. for the equipment. But yeah, I think at every step of technological progress, you have fear that it's gonna remove all these jobs. And it like if you really look at technological progress, you realize, well, it does replace some jobs and it does replace some of the the I think the problem becomes when it replaces the lower paying jobs and those are replaced with higher paying jobs that require a higher skill set, then you can start to see some issues within your population where, okay, we don't have enough quality jobs for people across the spectrum. I get that. At the same time, it's like if you're a designer, if you're making things now and we can make your work 80% faster, you're still doing eight hours a day. You are still doing a ton of work every day. You're just getting more productive for the hours that you put into that thing. You're doing five times more products. Though. Yeah, and that provides jobs down the line for people that are going to need to assemble those products and put those things together. And so it's like, I kind of look at it from that lens and go, I'm not all, um, technological progress is always good, but for the most part, I tend to fall to the side of, yes, CNC woodworking is still woodworking. It's just a different style of woodworking. It's a new tool. It's much more scalable than the, than the old process. We can use it to invent new products and ideas in a way that we just couldn't have before. And I bet if you if you lumped in CNC woodworkers under the category of woodworkers, they would outweigh traditional woodworkers like 800 to 1, if not more. For sure, for sure. I mean, you can 
how many woodworkers would it take to, to produce products for the world? It's it's not a scalable industry. It's very difficult to to scale somebody's skill set, and also the danger of the whole thing. Like, of course, there's danger with CNCs as well, but you know, you've got the risk factor, the human capital involved. It's crazy to think about how, just how much more efficient we became with that. And I don't necessarily think that it all boils down to speed. I think quality is a big thing in there. Like if you worked at your original speed before AI, but AI caused you to, or helped you prevent errors or the quality of your work was better. That's, that's more important in my book than just being faster. Definitely. Definitely. And obviously the precision of machines is part of the beauty of them is that it's, I know it's going to be so long as my machine is tuned and there's a lot of caveats here, but I know it's going to be pretty darn close to perfect every time. A good example would be talking about code. So in software development, you always have code review, right? And um, so before you go, well, hopefully before you push something to production, your production environment, it gets code reviewed and tested and, and all that good stuff. The idea is, what if you just treated the AI, we were talking about the AI brain, you know, giving it ideas and stuff and seeing what this other brain would think of stuff. That other brain could be there, you know, writing code, but it still goes through code review or it code reviews your stuff. Because they're not, we all know, we've all played with ChatGPT. It's not perfect. <laughs> no. My favorite thing about ChatGPT is if you ask it a technical question that you know the answer to, and it gives it to you wrong, and you go, hey, that's wrong. And it goes, oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. Here's the right answer. <laughs> it's like, you knew the right answer, didn't tell me it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think... It's uh, like it's trying to simulate the fallacies of humanity already. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's like you just got gaslit by ChatGPT, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, are you gaslighting me, ChatGPT? Is this for real? Yeah, I think, uh, and to kind of bring this back to the world of CAD, is like a lot of the design decisions that are around it can now be augmented with some form of AI. And that's going to continue to accelerate. But the one thing that I still feel very firmly is going to be true is we still, and if not, we probably need even more, but we're going to need people who know how to make 3D models on computers that can be made in the real world. And the pace at which we're going to need them, I think, will accelerate. So if CAD is a skill that you're thinking about getting in and you're worried AI is going to take over, I've played with the early versions of some of these 3D model generators, and I'm they will get there someday, but you're still going to need somebody to come in, manipulate those models, knows the CAD software well enough, knows the manufacturing world well enough. I can't see that skill set going away. Mm. I can see. I think I see an increase in demand over a long period of time with it. Yeah, even if, the say, the models an AI was outputting was were better. You're still going to have to look at it before you go, hey, I'm going to push that to my printer. <laughs> yeah. You're still going to want to yeah. check it. And so knowing CAD, you, that's how you would check it. Definitely, definitely. And, and, and you're going to want to make modifications to it. It's going to come out and it's not going to be perfect. Just like any, any developed decision is it's going to depend on the environment that it's in and the purpose that you're trying to make it serve and so there's all kinds of constraints that go along with it and it may know most of those constraints but there's still going to be human involvement that goes ah shoot I need to shrink that by 1% it's a little moist in here today and my filament's wetter than it usually is blah 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 right like yeah. whatever happened to it and so you, you're going to have to have somebody that knows how to go quickly in there and not go back to the original model and I don't know if you've tried this in GPT but if you asked it to do the same thing a couple of times, you will get different results. So if you ask it to make a model a couple of times, you will get a different model every time. So good luck trying to make something consistently. Like I can only imagine the kind of headache that would come along with make a sphere with all these. Here I'm gonna I'm miming in the screen. <laughs> you know, make us make three stack spheres. Like if you ask ChatGPT to stack three spheres, it might do it three different ways, right? Hmm. So how do you get it to go back and do the same thing? One's an ice cream cone. One's a snowman. One's a snowman. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I'm imagining you ask the AI to make your bracket and it's made of old paper clips. Ah. So. <laughs> so, okay, something that's going through my mind right now is the Jarvis computer in, in Iron Man where Tony Stark is basically just talking with it and like kind of designing with this computer. And in a way, I could see AI 
actually sort of in your space, Josh, with, with a CAD class, AI being able to teach on the fly, like you open the program and you just ask it, hey, I want to do this thing. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I understood what you just said. Or if you don't have the language right, like what we were talking about, like the word fillet, you, you know, say a student is in the program, they're like, oh, I, I know I want to take this corner and I want to smooth it or I want to round it or make it blah, blah. Did you mean fillet? Here, let me show you how to fillet kind of thing. I could see AI being so- involved in that. That's really interesting. What what it makes me think is that if you could drag a model into the software and then it auto-generated the instructions for how to make it mm. and then it spit out those instructions for you to recreate it, that gets that gets pretty interesting. Wow. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining that it also spit out like the words you would say to someone. And then also it would be like the oh man, this is way throwback. There was a video game on the Back on the Xbox with a Kinect, which was like a a peripheral that would shoot infrared at you. So you could figure out where your body was at in front of your screen. There was dancing games for it. So literally, it would teach you how to like dance mime to get the point across to other people. We've gone full <laughs> circle on this one. Yeah, I was going to say, can you imagine the, the program? There's a dancing person on the screen. Yeah. Now click this button. It's like miming. That's funny. But it teaches That's you. Funny. So you have to like do it in front of like connect sales go through the roof. You know, I, I could also see AI pumping out some really, really garbage instructions too. That, that if you followed them, <laughs> yes. you would get the thing, but it would be terrible to follow those instructions. I think, didn't we do that once, Parker? We, we had AI make a a beer recipe once. Yeah. And, and like, sure. Like if you did it, it would be beer, but it would probably be awful. Yeah. It was, it had really weird ratios. I I, yeah. I still want to brew that beer sometime. Cause it would be really <laughs> weird. Yeah. Yeah. It would. That's fair. That's an episode in itself. That's a fun discussion. What happens? Like, I, I think it, the funny thing is, is what happens in disciplines where there's not a lot of text, right? So how does, how does it even scrape databases for how these things are made. Well, I mean, CAD in general, like the, the basis of it has very little text, right? It's all visual. So you wonder, that must be quite a challenge to try to scrape a database of how things are made in a CAD software and then actually spit something out useful. So I even that, like, it sounds fun, it sounds interesting, but I can't imagine what would go into making it. Hmm. But the beer example is fantastic. I think you guys should do that. We should brew it, just yeah. podcast AI it. beer. AI beer. I that's there you go. You got your next viral YouTube hit right there. <laughs> AI beer. I bet you that's already been done. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, but we can do it the MacFab Engineering Podcast way. That's right. Exactly. I mean exactly. Take the stupidity to insane heights. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Josh, what is next for CAD class? If there is what what is next? We talked about AI, we talked about the language of, of 3D. So what is next? What is next for CAD class is just getting this, this visual thinking in the hands of as many people in the world as we can. So we're, we're in talks with a couple of creators for expanding our program out, maybe doing a couple different CAD softwares, maybe Tinkercad, maybe Onshape, maybe some of these other popular tutorials, right? And truly becoming a platform where you can come and go from zero to one. So I think that's still the biggest hurdle is not enough people know enough to even bring simple creations to life. And then beyond the simple creations, if you can get to the simple creation, you can do that somewhat on YouTube, but it's like, okay, now I want to make a robot or now I want to make something that cleans the oceans or now I want to actually use this skill set to solve big, real problems in the world. So we're on a mission to try to get this into the hands of as many people as we can. So we give the book away for free on our website, 28 Step-by-Step Projects, and they are very step-by-step. So you're not, we're not going to skip anything as we go. And, and we've stumbled across a model that brings together people because each project in our book is linked to a Discord server. And so you can go in and chat about the projects you're working on with other people in the world who are also working on the same projects, which, as we all exist kind of siloed in our worlds everywhere, is somewhat tough to get. And we're going to take that model and we're going to try to replicate it and build it and grow other classes, other ideas, other things that you may want to learn that are difficult or challenging or technical. We'll write the books, we'll film the courses, so we're in the we're in the process of doing that for our next course right now. Uh, we're going to do a 
basic 3D printing course, just because even though I'm in that world, I sometimes forget about how few people are still in that world. So go back to the basics, teach people, hey, the, the most interesting way to bring your models to life is to actually print them out on a 3D printer next to you. That gives you that tangible, oh, I made the thing in my brain, became the thing in the computer, became the thing in front of my face. That connection between those things, I think, drives people to want to learn more. So we're going to film, we're hopefully going to film that course here in the next few weeks, write the book on that, following it, and then expand out into other CAD softwares and hopefully teach people that CAD is important as code. And this is a technical skill set that we should really lean heavily on, especially if in the United States we're serious about competing with other manufacturing juggernauts in the world. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for joining us this week again to talk about uh, CAD class and 3D modeling. Thanks so much. So if everyone wants to find out more about Josh and Cataclos, we will have the links in our show notes. But yeah. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, for listening to our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.